May God's word only be spoken and God's word only be heard. Amen. As you heard, in the coming months, I will be publishing a book on the multiple strands of prophetic traditions in the Bible, actually both testaments, uh, with a view to how those prophetically informed traditions may shape ministry in ministry, discipleship, Christian theology in the 21st century. One element prominent in several of those prophetic traditions is the representation of the prophet as the trusted friend of God. The trusted friend of God with all the difficulties that real consequential friendship entails. To illumine some of those difficulties, I turn this morning to Abraham and I begin with a few verses from Genesis 20. Genesis 20, the singular moment when Abraham is named as a prophet. That moment brings us to the very heart of Abraham's story and his relationship with God. I'm going to start with Genesis 20, but I'm going to spend my time this morning in chapters 18, 20, and 22. So you might just leave your Bibles open. This is when Abraham and Sarah are sojourning in Gerar. Okay, verse 2 of chapter 20. And Abraham said concerning Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, the king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah into his harem. Um, And God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, look, you're dead on account of the woman whom you took since she is married. But Abimelech had not approached her. And he said, my Lord, even an innocent nation you would slay? Didn't he say to me, she is my sister? And she too said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and in the cleanness of my hands, I did this. And God said to him in the dream, I too know that in the innocence, the integrity of your heart, you did this. And I myself kept you from sinning against me. Um, Therefore, I did not allow you to touch her. And now, return the, um, sorry, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so he may pray on your behalf and you, and you live. Uh, if you do, but if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who belong to you. Give back the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will intercede for you and live. It works. Abimelech's women conceive. The whole place, as you know, had been stricken barren. It is a heroic moment for Abraham, or it would be a heroic moment were he not the cause of the problem in the first place. 
He misled Abimelech and compromised Sarah because, as he frankly says, he was afraid for his life. So, verse 10. Um, And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? And Abraham said, I said, It's just that there is no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me on account of my wife. But, you know, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father. It's just that she's not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God set me to wandering away from the house of my father, it's basically God's fault, when God sent sent me to wandering away from the house of my father, I said to her, do me this favor to wherever we go, you shall say concerning me, he is my brother. Obviously, Abraham did not trust God fully to bring them safely through their wanderings. So Abraham prays to God on Abimelech's behalf as a flawed intercessor. He is guilty before God, wife, and neighbor, but nonetheless, his prayer is heeded. This is important for our further understanding of both prayer and the role of the prophet as the Bible understands it. So much begins with Abraham. The prophetic office itself, the unfolding of God's blessing of all nations, here represented by the Gentile king of Gerar, Abimelech, the blessing of all nations through Abraham and his seed, and indeed intercessory intercessory prayer itself begins with Abraham. This scene follows on the more famous scene of chapter 18, where Abraham intercedes for Sodom. You might call that the invention of intercessory prayer. As you know, that earlier scene began with God's self-questioning about how to proceed in the face of human evil. So God says, chapter 18, verse 17, shall I conceal from Abraham what I am doing? Though Abraham will certainly become a nation great and formidable, through which all the nations of the earth shall experience blessing. This divine self-interrogation marks a new moment in God's way of contending with radical human evil. As here, the deity fixes upon an interactive M.O., consulting with another moral agent. You recall that God's last encounter with radical human evil. Um, Well, maybe not absolutely the last. It depends if you want to view um, Sodom, if you want to view the Tower of Babel as radical human evil or not. Um, But God did not consult with Noah. The rabbis actually criticize uh, Noah for not coming back at God and saying, are you sure you really really want to do this? Um, But God didn't didn't give Noah an obvious opening for that, but now it's something different. 
And God tells us why this new interactive approach is chosen. Ki yadativ, for I have known him. So that he may command his children and his house after him, and they will keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice in order that the Lord might bring upon Abraham all that he has spoken concerning him. Yedativ, I have known him. As you know, there is a connotation of intimacy that often attends the Hebrew verb yada, no. The exilic poet known as Second Isaiah cites God's, you might say, pet name for Abraham, Ohadi, my love, alternately the one who loves me, Isaiah, 48, Isaiah 41, verse 8. A less literal but possibly better rendering of Ohavi would be my devoted friend. Friendship is the closest analogy to this bond between Abraham and God, the closest analogy to be found in the holy human sphere. There exists between these two the same intimate mutual knowledge and trust that Jesus acknowledges between himself and the disciples. You I have called friends. Genesis 18, verse 23. And Abraham approached God and he said, Would you really sweep away the innocent with the guilty? Abraham approached God with respect to this moment of approach. The ancient rabbis note that that Hebrew verb nagash occurs multiple times in the Bible, sometimes when someone approaches God for prayer, but also when one approaches an adversary for battle. There's a lovely midrash, a rabbinic story that Abraham says, If it is for prayer, I am coming. If it is for negotiation, I am coming. If it is for battle, I am coming. At this moment, Abraham becomes the first person in the history of the world to appeal to God's justice. And simultaneously, Abraham is the first to question God's justice. Would you really sweep away the innocent with the wicked. The grammatical particle I'm translating really, af, it lends a note of incredulity and forceful challenge. It's nearly identical to the phrasing in the snake's incendiary question to the woman in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say you could not eat from any tree in the garden? The implication being that unreasonable old so-and-so. But once he has launched into his verbal offense, Abraham stops for neither breath nor an answer until he has said it all. Maybe there are 50 innocent people in the city. Would you really sweep them away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 innocent people who are in it? 
It is profanation to you to do something like this, to kill the innocent with the wicked. So the righteous should be just like the wicked? That is profanation to you. Should not the judge of all the earth do justly? When God seeds that point, Abraham begins, you know the scene, to work God down in a, famil- in a manner that is familiar to anyone who has haggled in a market where no price is fixed. What if there are only 45 innocent people? Or 40? 30? 20? 10? Throughout the whole scene, Abraham vacillates between uncomfortable awareness of his own presumption, I am just dust and ashes, presumption and discomfort with that on the one hand, and determination to influence God to do the right thing on the other hand. John Levinson observes that Abraham's apologetic presumption perfectly expresses, quoting Levinson, both the necessity and the absurdity of a person's telling God what to do. Now let's compare these two scenes more carefully. The haggling over Sodom and the contretemps in the royal palace in Gerard. Both of them raise a question about God's justice. When God appears to to Abimelech in the night and tells him he's a dead man, the king unwittingly poses a variant of Abraham's own question. My Lord, even an innocent nation you would slay? But the Gentiles of Gerar are not like those of Sodom, and that is important. The scene with Abimelech in chapter 20 is in several respects the necessary counterbalance for chapter 18. The scene in chapter 20 keeps us indeed from making several dangerous dangerous generalizations based on taking the first story, Sodom, in isolation. Chapter 20 offers a potential corrective of our misreading of that earlier story in three ways. First, and I've given you a handout so you don't have to listen so carefully. First, chapter 20 prevents us from thinking that all non-Israelites are morally reprobate. Specifically, they are not all sexual predators. The narrator is explicit that Abimelech had not come near Sarah. Second, chapter 20 keeps us from misreading the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah as proving that Gentiles or those who do not worship Israel's God exclusively, assuming that they are by definition beyond the reach of divine mercy. By contrast, this story shows God's mercy actively extended toward this innocent nation of Gentiles when the conditions for receiving God's mercy with understanding are present, as they evidently were not at Sodom. 
Here, the condition for receiving God's mercy with understanding is precisely Abimelech's integrity of heart, which he asserts and God affirms. Third, chapter 20 miscorrects any Chapter 20 corrects any misunderstanding of what qualifies Abraham to be heard by God when he prays. Abraham does not stand before God, the posture of prayer. He does not stand before God in a state of perfect or permanent innocence. In this case, Abraham is more guilty than Abimelech, for whom he prays. So this story implies a question about God's justice, even beyond the questions that Abraham and Abimelech pose directly, namely this question. Will God heed the prayer even of the guilty if it is a true prayer on behalf of the innocent? And the answer is yes. When in Gerar, God dubs Abraham a prophet, that means he is qualified to intercede for non-Israelites so that they may experience blessing through him. That's quoting chapter 18. It's an echo of the promise that God makes to Abraham when God first calls him in Genesis 12. So, Abraham as a prophet is qualified to pray for non-Israelites. He is not qualified to render moral judgment upon them. One more story is essential for understanding what it means for Abraham to be God's ohev, his uh, God's devoted friend. I am in chapter 22, beginning at the first verse. And it happened after these things. This will be important. And it happened after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Yes, sir, here I am, Hineni. And he said, Now, take your son, your only one, whom you love, Isaac, And get you going to the land of Moriah and offer him up there as a whole offering upon one of the mountains which I shall designate to you. And Abraham got up early in the morning and he saddled his ass and he took his two young men with him and Isaac his son and he chopped the wood for the sacrifice And he rose up and he went to the place which God had indicated to him. Huh? How could the feisty Abraham, who confronted God over the hypothetical existence of a few innocent sodomites, how could that be the same man who now utters not a word of objection when God demands that he sacrifice his son, his only one, the one he loves? This is possibly the toughest exegetical question in Genesis. 
and I am going to suggest three lines of approach to that question, three distinct but converging lines of interpretation of these several stories. First, just as Genesis 20, the Abimelech story, corrects certain misconceptions with which we might have come away from Genesis 18, Sodom and Gomorrah, so now Genesis 22 corrects certain misunderstandings of Genesis 20. Are you with me? Okay, it's a progressive clarification. We're getting a gradually refined picture of how Abraham stands before God. Consider, at the end of chapter 20, Abraham is riding high with God's sanction, it would seem. He makes out quite literally like a bandit from the encounter with Abimelech. So now I'm reading to you from Genesis 20, beginning at verse 14. And Abimelech took flock animals and herd animals and male slaves and female slaves, and he gave them to Abraham, uh, and he returned to him Sarah, his wife. And Abimelech said, Look, my land is before you. Wherever is good in your eyes, settle down. And to Sarah he said, Look, I have given to a thousand pieces of silver to your brother. Um, here it will be for you a covering of the eyes for everyone that you encounter. And Abraham interceded uh, with God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his, um, his female servants, and um, that might, doesn't say concubines, but it could be read that way, um, and they gave birth. Okay. At this point, being God's prophet looks like a pretty good deal. You pray a little, and you make a killing. That impression cannot be allowed to stand. Hence the need for the story of the binding of Isaac in Genesis 22. A second suggestion. The larger story of Abraham must demonstrate his covenantal commitment along two different axes. The vertical axis, total commitment to God, and the horizontal axis of total compassion for humanity. Genesis 22 demonstrates God's, Abraham's commitment to God. Genesis 18, his compassion for humanity. This twofold commitment might be seen as the essential tension in which the prophet is called to stand. And psychologically speaking, it may be nearly impossible to hold those two total commitments to God and to humanity in perfect balance. Yet, theologically speaking, Torah demands both. Love for God that withholds nothing of the self, Deuteronomy 6.5, 
Vahavta et Renael Hecha, and you shall uh, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and and with all of your intensity. Sorry. With all of your heart and all of your being and everything you've got. You shall love God in a way that withholds nothing of self. At the same time, Torah demands love for the neighbor that is equally unstinting. And you shall be loving to your neighbor as to yourself. So the balance that no individual member of the community may be able to achieve perfectly in one's own person that balance must be upheld narratively. In Israel's story, and especially it must be upheld in the story of Abraham because he is the human anchor for the covenant between God and Israel. This need for theological balance within the narrative may explain why we need these two portraits of Abraham that are not easily reconciled. On the one hand, gutsy Abraham arguing for Sodom, and on the other, submissive Abraham ready to offer up his son when God demands of him, in Eliot's phrase, nothing less than everything. A third suggestion. These two stories of Abraham at Sodom and Abraham at Moriah, these exemplify the twin moments in the spiritual life that eventually every person of deep faith must recognize in themselves, however reluctantly. Now is the moment to argue with God Now, the moment to trust God no matter what. The grueling story of the binding of Isaac is most often treated as promoting absolute and unconditional obedience as an essential religious virtue. That, for instance, is John Levinson's view. Absolute and unconditional obedience as an essential religious virtue. We are specifically told that this mountaintop event is a test of Abraham. And after these things, God tested Abraham. But the important question is, what is God testing Abraham for? It seems to me, here I would differ from Levinson, it seems to me that the point of the test is not whether Abraham will obey, but whether he can trust. And that's quite a different thing, I think, even if it leads to the same place. As I have suggested, Abraham's willingness to pass off Sarah as his sister and see her go into the harem of a powerful man, not once but twice, it happens in chapter 12 also of Genesis. Abraham's willingness to compromise Sarah suggests that he does not trust God all that much. He is looking out for himself, whatever the cost to others may be. 
Remember those opening words in, in Genesis 22, After these things, God tested Abraham. Abraham's earlier conduct has left a question in God's mind, and it should have left one in ours as well. I'll return to this point of God's uncertainty about Abraham in a moment. But first, let's probe a little bit further into Abraham's need to trust God. I am turning to the 20th century Orthodox Jewish theologian Eliezer Berkowitz, who himself turned repeatedly to the figure of Abraham, and especially Abraham on Mount Moriah, as Berkowitz struggled with the question of what it means for Jews to have faith following the Holocaust. I'm going to be citing to you from Eliezer Berkowitz's book with the title, With God in Hell. It's a study of, um, of Jewish faith in the ghettos and the camps of the Third Reich. Berkowitz himself was not a survivor of the camps. He actually left uh, Europe before the war, but most of his family died in the camps. So he poses the question, what does it mean for Jews to have faith following the Holocaust? And his answer is that genuine faith is not the intellectual affirmation of God's existence, nor is it an irrational leap into the total unknown. Rather, faith for a Jew is a matter of lived trust, of standing firm in the covenant life, even in the face of God's incomprehensible demands, or, as Berkowitz puts it, in the midst of God's exasperating silences a matter of lived trust. I think that's what faith is for a Christian as well. As you know, the biblical Abraham is totally silent throughout the grueling test on Mount Moriah, but Berkowitz, in the manner of rabbinic tradition, supplies words to biblical characters, and so he gives Abraham words to interpret his silence. And this is what he hears Abraham saying. Almighty God, what you are asking of me is terrible. I do not understand you. You contradict yourself. But I have known you, my God. You have loved me, and I love you. My God, you are breaking your word to me. What is one to think of you? Yet I trust you. I trust you. And then in Berkowitz, in his own voice, Such was the trust of Abraham in God, and such was the trust of the authentic Jew in the ghettos and the camps. Trust is the bond of love between two who have found each other, who belong to each other. It is not reason that it rejects. It is the hurt, the pain that it overcomes. Trust affirms the reality of the relationship. 
It is the truth of the covenant in action. End quote. Thus, Berkowitz has shown what it means for God to know Abraham. It means that they are intimate, intimates. Through the covenanted life, Abraham and his descendants are gradually formed so that they can trust God beyond all knowing and understanding. And reciprocally, they are formed so they might be worthy of God's trust in them. For as I've suggested, God's trust in Abraham is also at stake after these things. That God's trust in Abraham should also be at stake is, I think, the only way we can make full sense of the divine response to Abraham on Mount Moriah. So I am reading to you now from Genesis 22, beginning at verse 10. And Abraham stretched out his hand, and he took the knife to slaughter his son. And the angel of the Lord, the visible presence of God, or the palpable presence of God, um, called to him from the sky and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Hineni, yes, sir, here I am. And he said, do not send out your hand to the lad and do not, um, and do not do to him a single thing. Um, for now I know, Yadati, now I know that you fear God in that you did not withhold your son, your only one from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes, and he looked, and here is behind a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham walked over and took the um, ram and offered it up as a sacrifice instead of his son. Va'atayadati, now I know. Obviously, there was something that God did not know before. Namely, whether Abraham would hold anything back. Whether Abraham would set limits, however reasonable those limits might be, on what God could demand of him. And God has to know that. Because God has now put all the divine eggs in Abraham's basket, so to speak. God's whole plan for the blessing of the world depends solely on him. The totality of the enterprise they have undertaken together, and therefore the need for total trust on both sides, this is the only thing that makes this story something other than an account of a sadistic God torturing some poor believer merely for the sake of amusement. If Abraham's God is not to be judged a sadist, which is biblically impossible, if that is not the case, then strange as it is to say, Abraham's God must have a genuine need a need to know if Abraham is trustworthy. 
This is a need born out of the most profound relationship possible between God and a human being. Trust between God and the human is, as Berkowitz says, the truth of the covenant in action. So now we can begin to see how this whole narrative sequence fits together, chapters 18, 20, and 22. Chapter 22 provides the crucial affirmation of the vertical dimension of covenant relationship, which was still lacking after after Abraham's intercessory prayers for Sodom and in chapter 18 and Abimelech in Genesis 20. Further, this sequence, 1820-22, is foundational for our understanding of what it is to be a prophet. The pivotal reference to Abraham as prophet, the first person to be named as such in the Bible, that pivotal reference in chapter 20 points both forward and backward to two unforgettable confrontations between Abraham and God. It brings their seemingly opposite theological statements, Abraham at Sodom and Abraham on Moriah, it brings those apparently opposite theological statements together into what Levinson calls a larger dialectical theology. That larger theology of covenant allows, as we have seen, for both presumption toward God for the sake of the world and submission to God for God's own sake. Indeed, it requires both of those. For, as John Levinson has seen, one without the other would make a mockery of biblical religion. So, citing Levinson, by itself, the theology of Genesis 18 would soon lead to a religion in which God's will had ceased to be a reality. The human conscience, having filtered out all divine direct directives that offended it, would produce a God that was only itself writ large. Left to its own, Genesis 22, on the other hand, would lead to a religion of fanaticism, in which God would be so incomprehensible that even the praise of God as wise or just would be meaningless and faithfulness to him would be indistinguishable from mindless, slavish obedience. End quote. Thus, with Abraham, the Bible begins to show what it is to serve prophetically in covenantal context. Negotiating dual commitments to humanity and to God from moment to moment discerning when to challenge God on behalf of humanity or Israel and when to submit in trust to the sometimes inscrutable divine will. I conclude now by noting that this dialectical theology operates in circumstances more common than those faced by Abraham or the Jews in Nazi-controlled Europe. A hospital chaplain pointed out to me that when a patient receives a terminal diagnosis, the genesis pattern of human interaction with God is frequently replicated by both patient and loved ones. First bargaining, 
Genesis Genesis 18, then pleading, Genesis 20, and finally acceptance, Genesis 22. Acceptance, or dare I say it, trust. Thank you.